Thanks for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Um, so you're going to talk a little bit to us about sort of uh, vitalism, which you're sort mm-hmm. of your um, sort of which is your main sort of research uh, thing. You spent sort of many years looking at the 1800s and French vitalism, and you're looking at uh, people like Ravisson, Mandiboran, and Bergson, and all of these uh, thinkers. So I'm just sort of to start off really basic. Um, what do you understand by the word vitalism? Um, first of all, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. It's good to be here. Um, what do I understand by vitalism? Well, y- you have to understand the term historically. So vitalism is a, a movement in 18th century, predominantly French thought, that is a reaction to two previous modes of understanding um, the human being and its relation to the body. And those two modes are, on the one hand, materialism, so vitalism, vitalism in the 18th century is opposed to earlier materialist doctrines, but it's also opposed to a particular doctrine called animism. Now, animism and, and materialism, then, are two doctrines in the 17th century, two attempts to explain what the, um, the to explain the relation of mind to body. So, so when you say animism, you mean sort of in the sort of the religious supernatural? No, it has a technical philosophical sense in the seventeenth century. Ah. The the leading light of the um, of the animist movement is a thinker called Stahl um, of Phlogiston fame. Phlogiston, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, now Stahl promotes the idea that all physiological processes are a function of the soul. The heartbeat is a function of the soul. Uh, digestion is a function of the soul. Right, so this is kind of Aristotle, is it? It's clearly a derivative of an Aristotelian uh, framework. But it's Stahl is in response himself, in response to materialist positions. Mm-hmm. So to the idea of the man-machine that's prominent in the 17th century. So uh, La Métrie, thinkers um, like that, advancing the idea that the, the human body is just a machine and and there probably is no extra principle such as mine. That's an extra, that's an additional philosophical question. But the idea about the body is that it, it works according to mechanical processes. That's a part of the modern mechanical philosophy of the period. Animism is a, uh, is a response to 17th century materialism and Stahl famously argues that all physiological processes are teleological and they're they're governed by thoughts now that might that may seem um at first glance absurd clearly i can't control my heart rate like i can control the movement of my arm Mm -hmm. so in what sense is is the heart is the pulse um a function of of conscious deliberation and control now, note that we can control the heart rate a little bit, or some people can at least. So, yeah. so it's it's not it's not wholly ridiculous. This this particular example, 
But what Stahl does is is make a distinction. And this was not always seen because he was criticised by the vitalists later on precisely this mm. point. That's why vitalism arises, because it's held, Stahl's animism is held to be impossible mm -hmm. and absurd. But Stahl argues that there are two forms of consciousness. There's clear rational deliberation, which he calls um, uh, logos. And there's there's a pre-reflective awareness which he calls logismos. So there are two forms of thought. Mm -hmm. So he's not really arguing that um, all physiological processes are conditioned by reflective thought. No, he's not saying I'm, I'm thinking about my heartbeat. No, he's saying there are different modes of thought and the soul in its less reflective modes, governs all physiological processes. Now, that's his position. And the vitalists are trying to distinguish themselves a little bit from this? Now, vitalism is interesting because it's it's proposing a third way. Right. So vitalism resists classical mechanism of the 17th century, but it doesn't accept animism's response to, to classical mechanism. And vitalism... Uh, precisely understood is the idea that life including human life and human embodiment life is conditioned by a principle that's irreducible either to matter or to mind so it really is a third way I mean vitalism can be understood in very loose ways but as a, as a movement in 18th century thought it's a it's a reaction to animism on the one hand and materialism on the other so it's trying to negotiate the difference between um, material materiality and immateriality, yeah. matter and soul. Yeah. And how so then that's a good good place to go. So how then does say someone like Ravison negotiate that difference? Well, I mean, before we get to Ravison, let's just say in principle that the idea of vitalism is that there's this there is this uh vital force, a living force that is at the origin of all physiological processes, but it's irreducible to the mind. So, oh all physiological processes. All physiological processes, yeah. Life. All form of life is the function of a of a living principle. Yes, okay, that makes sense. But when you say all physiological processes, that's can we under, can we use the word biological to, yeah, to fine, that? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But we all, can't use the word say the physical. It doesn't it doesn't refer to like stones and uh no, because they're not living. Right. So right. all, so, all yeah. living things to to understand life and to explain life you mm. have to posit a um a specific principle that goes beyond matter that's irreducible on the one hand to matter and on the other hand to mind that's yeah. what vitalism is now there are different forms of vitalism so it, it it develops through the 18th century at the beginning of the 18th century there might be an idea that um there's one vital principle kind of like a soul but there's one principle that governs all physiological operations but the the, the the idea of a principle of life irreducible to mind and matter it kind of gets disseminated in the in the 18th century the idea is that there are there's not just one principle there's a plurivitalism plurivitalism, plurivitalism at the end of the 18th century okay, what does Bichat, that mean There's... well it means that the um, the form of life in particular tissues bichat is famous for having founded yeah yeah histology what's histology it's the science of tissues and it's the idea that different tissues have got different, irreducibly different properties. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no sort of common, 
there's no you can't reduce the different properties of 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 tissues to different chemical structures there's there's something irreducibly different to different tissues yeah um, nervous tissue is different to muscle tissue for example mm-hmm. um that's not uncontroversial is it it's not uncontroversial not now maybe perhaps yeah well, I mean, we've got different orders of explanation now. We may be reducing all the explanation of all tissues to chemical and chem- chemical analysis, DNA, whatever it may be. But at the time, the plurivitalism is the idea that there are different centres in li- of life in the one living being. You can't account for life in its plurality according to one single principle. So that's um, Xavier Bichat, um, who wrote... Um, three major works, but physiological research is concerning life and death in eighteen, in eighteen hundred, and Bichat is known as a plurivitalist. So you know, vitalism is a, is is a plural tradition itself. Now, you ask me about Ravisson, where does he fit into this? What's interesting about Ravisson, and I think he's the only thinker doing this um, in the nineteenth century is that he wants to establish a synthesis right. of all of these thinkers. Right. So can I ask a naive question yeah. then? You know, you've translated De Labitude of Habit with uh, Claire Carlyle, sort of a brilliant, brilliant essay. And uh, I think the... Uh, uh, is, um, is, is, is Habit that sort of middle ground in, uh, that negotiates that synthesis? Uh, yes, yes. The, the the answer is that his reflection is, in a sense, it's not entirely dependent on a reflection on habit, but it's at least um, borrows from it. But I mean, the point with Ravisson is Ravisson vitalist? No, he's not, because he he precisely argues against the idea that the principle of consciousness is different to and irreducible to the principle of life. His predecessor in the spiritualist tradition in 19th century French philosophy, um, Mendebiron, had argued precisely that, that, he, that, that habit can be explained by a kind of vital force, a vital tendency. Yeah. Um, but that's very different to the principle of consciousness, which for Biron is the will. Yeah. It's a voluntarist psychology that he presents. Now, where's Ravisson? In relation to this, he wants to argue that it's the same principle, but at different levels, that um, explains consciousness and physiological phenomena and bodily phenomena. Okay, okay. so when, when you say will, then, um, is it fair to say for Rabison, then, where will is something that applies to biological or uh, physiological forms processes? Of forms of physiological processes, so... And at a very basic level, isn't isn't sort of to say that something has a will is that it has a a want, as a desire. A for desire. Something. So I mean, if you think of will in terms of desire, then it, it it it's less difficult to see desire in all living things. Mm. And that, if you think in those terms, you can see perhaps what Ravisson might be trying to do by arguing, well, according to a a, a panpsychist position panpsychism so, being the doctrine that mind is everywhere so is this like, is it spinoza i guess uh, not I quite mean, spinoza maybe yeah yeah we can get to that i mean yeah. it, it may be spinozist in a certain sense but it's certainly panpsychist and spinoza is not the only panpsychist it's panpsychist in the sense that ravisson wants to argue that mind is 
everywhere and even in in what we call inert matter but that's a that's a that's the kind of most difficult part of the mm. equation for him but he wants to argue yes that there is desire a forms of desire all the way through the natural world and, and in the human mind and, and these different forms are expressions of the one unitary principle where does habit come into this well what what habit shows us what the acquisition of a habit shows us for for Harbison, is these different levels on the scale uh, um when i acquire a habit say an ability to play a piece on the piano what we see is an action becoming less and less conscious more and more mm. prompts and precise yeah. more occurring more and more without the uh right deliberation. so it becomes unthinking it becomes a form absolutely of i just think of the uh, john coltrane just playing right you know like yep. um you know, she just kept doing the fingerings over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I'm I'm learning to play the piano at the moment, and um, it's the first time in perhaps a decade when I've learned to do something new, and it's it's not it's a minor it's a miracle, however minor it may be. The 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 the, the fact of learning, the fact of 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 your your fingers learning and knowing what to do and where to place themselves mm. be, before and prior to sort of thoughts is remarkable. Yeah. Prior to agency, I guess. Yes. Oh, deliberative agency, yeah. yeah. So, so where's habit? So, we described Ravisson's philosophical position as he's trying to attempt a synthesis of animism and vitalism mm -hmm. by saying it's the same principle all the way down. Stahl was right all along. Stahl's animism was right all along. The vitalists, they weren't wrong. But they, they misunderstood Stahl. There was no need to be so hostile to Stahl for, for, on Havisson's account. You know, the, the vitalists used to sort of mock Stahl. Mm -hmm. What, the mind's responsible for the for digestion? Beans don't have souls. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, properly understood, there's no there's no need to oppose vitalism and animism. It's a synthesis of these two schools that Havisson is offering. Okay. Um, and, and what habit shows us is the fact that there are degrees of consciousness, degrees of the will in desire. And it, habit shows us consciousness becoming less and less conscious, kind of descending the scale mm. into natural mm. desire. But what habit shows us there is that prior to the assumption of the position of consciousness, that natural desire must have already been there. It's kind of a transcendental argument in the sense that the the prior condition of of, of clear reflect reflection, deliberative consciousness, is natural desire, and that's an ethical point for for Ravisson as well. Problem of motivation in in mm. ethical theory. Why why should we act morally? Yeah, we we can yeah. we we can be rational agents. We can be deontologists. We can work out what it is that we should do. Mm. But what's the motivation for doing so? Why should we act morally? Why should mm. I? Why should I um, fulfil my duty? Harvey has a certain response to that position. It's quite Aristotelian. In yeah, it's very way. Aristotelian. It's that yeah. our habits and our our natural yeah. our, our desires are should should already be attuned to the good. Mm. And and you know, it's it's in that prior attunement that we have the grounds for the choices that we make in rational deliberation. Okay, so I think like when I talk to the students about Ravison, I think which is interesting, like to me because um, when, they, when 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 like I think some of the objections there is to Ravison is that they seem to quite like it, 
but uh, I, I think they find sort of some of the problems with the sort of the, the sort of I guess the metaphysical sort of basis of it that it is not sort of sciencey enough or it's not scientific enough. Mm. Yet it's interesting for me to hear now that like sort of Rabison was very much uh, responding to sort of eighteenth century versions of science. I guess absolutely. Yeah. So do you think that now? Do you think he, he he's been sort of um, do you think do you think he's relevant now to sort of contemporary versions of science that you've looked into or? I mean, contemporary versions of science. I mean, we have to go straight to contemporary neuroscience and contemporary neuroscientific accounts of habits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what would those accounts be? They would, they would uh, explain the acquisition of habit in terms of neural changes, changes in in uh, cerebral cortex, principally. Can that ever be? Can such a materialist, physiological mm -hmm. account? of habit acquisition ever be convincing from a Ravisonian perspective? No. No. So it's, it's well, because it's reductive, right? At it, a very basic level. It's yeah. reductive. And what, what is the brain? The brain is an object in the world. It's, it operates in the third person. It, mm. and it, we're understanding it in scientific terms as according to efficient causal processes. Mm. Mechanistic, indeed, mechanistic yeah. processes, and that the whole point of, of an acquired habit for Ravisson is that it's not a third-person phenomenon. I still act when I act habitually. Right. Yeah. So there is a sort of a, there's a there's a distance about he who acts or she who acts. Mm. Yeah. 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 I mean, and isn't there like I mean, I mean, people like Catherine Malibu don't they don't they talk about sort of uh, the plasticity of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of yeah. vitalism and so also the plasticity of the brain yeah I mean the question here is whether or not that's the that's not just confusing different issues I mean I'm very sympathetic to Catherine Malibu's early work on on Hegel where she talks about plasticity in in a more philosophical sense in terms of uh, in in her book on the future of Hegel, she talks about the plasticity of the soul. Mm -hmm. It's the soul in its in as a, as a, a temporal form mm. that's able to change and mould itself to circumstances. When that discourse of plasticity is a, is is applied to or thought through the contemporary neurosciences, then I think I think the we've confused the genres and it no longer works as a philosophical position. Okay, right. Because because. What does the idea of plasticity mean in neuroscientific, neurological terms? It means that, say, if one part of my brain is injured, another part of the brain will be able to take over the same cycle, the same functions. Um, that's that's established now. That, yeah. you, that psychological functions are not located in particular regions of the brain. There's, there's much more of a kind of organic interconnection um, of different um, loci, different centres in the brain. It can't be understood in any kind of mechanistic sense. That's fine, mm -hmm. but I don't think... You get to the same place. You get to the same place in... in, uh, in, in you don't get to a, a philosophical account of how habit is something other than a third-person phenomenon. Mm. of how habit is something an acquired habit, habit operates according to something mm. other than mechanical mm. third person processes maybe it's just people sort of to, to, to contemporary ears the word soul is probably unsatisfactory Cer certainly um, it doesn't chime well with our contemporary materialist um, mm. instincts but 
perhaps it's incumbent on us as philosophers to uh, reclaim the soul. Yeah, reclaim the soul. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So now uh, I just wanted to speak to you briefly about another, um, another, another sort of vitalist, famous vitalist thinker, thinker, probably someone who is much more famous than as Henri Bergson. Um, where does I suppose what you, would you say in your estimation is the unique achievement of Bergson within the vitalist canon or tradition? All thinker only has one thought, as Bergson said, and Bergson's principle idea is the idea of time as duration. Mm. A lot a non-linear understanding of time. Time we can represent as a line. I can understand the present moment as being on a on, on a line as being before future moments and after past moments. But as, as soon as I understand time in such a momentary fashion and therefore linear fashion, yeah. then I have turned time into space well that's a for, that's that's, a, that's quite an abstract thought could you well the idea is that that, that time i mean you you could the, the problem here is that Bergson's idea is that as soon as we think of time we turn it into space i mean that's going very quickly but that's mm. that's his idea as soon as we we in using the imagination what does the imagination do what does what does thought do this is what Belton argues at the beginning of the book time argue, free will yeah. yeah at the beginning of time of free will he, he argues that um, to quantify something <clears throat> is to spatialize it if I want to count something if I really understand what I mean when saying 9 plus 3 equals 12 I can say it and the words might be hollow and empty but if I want to understand the meaning of, the, of those words I've got to envisage imagine nine things three things and together the sum of the nine and three things being 12 so things. it's you're organizing things in a sort of a spatial way you're organizing things in a spatial way now that's Bergson's philosophy of mathematics he's philosophy of mathematics he's taken it all from from Ravisson in mm. of habit but let's draw the consequences of that which Ravisson doesn't if time if to, if quantification is spatialization and time is different to space, then time cannot be quantified. So time is irreducible. Time is irreducible to quantity. As soon as you try and quantify time, one hour, five minutes, three seconds, whatever. Yeah. As soon as you try and think about time as moments on a line, you spatialize time. So then this is why Bergson, I guess, this is his contribution to vitalism. He thinks of time as the vital force as flow i guess as, yeah. you know yeah a, a, quali a qualitative rather than quantitative is yeah. that, would that be fair to well, say his phrase is a qualitative multiplicity rather than a quantitative multiplicity okay so what is a qualitative multiplicity what is a qualitative multiplicity i mean look the, the essential issue with Bergson's thought particularly in the first book is that you you have to understand what he's not saying before you understand what he is saying you have to understand the the negative statement of the argument because it is principally negative i mean this may be a problem but Bergson's saying first of all time is not space mm -hmm. time is not quantifiable mm -hmm. um it's not a quantitative multiplicity it's not homogeneity so you can't say what is it then no what is it then so he offers the he offers the opposite of all these points it's not homogeneity it's mm. heterogeneity right. it's not 
Um, it's not a quantitative multiplicity, it's a qualitative multiplicity. It's not unitary, it's plurality, yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, I'm not sure he puts it exactly like that, but that's in the spirit of what he's doing now. Clearly, this is a via negativa, this is a mm. negative method. What exactly we want to know is Bergson telling us positively yeah. about time. And this is where Bergson, the writer, Bergson... The writer who influenced you know, many of the most famous novelists of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Post, and... Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot attended the Joyce, Joyce, I would imagine, yeah. Joyce as well. So rather than offer an argument, Bergson's appealing to your experience. And he's appealing to the unity of your intuition, experience. Yeah. The method he baptizes later as intuition. Um, if we all pay attention to our experience through this what um, under the heading of intuition if we all just look at what we experience without conceptualizing it without abstracting from it without spatializing it we will see that the the passage of our experience is the unity of a melody Bergson always uh, yeah. appeals back to to appeals to, to sort of poetic music, metaphors and poetic musical metaphors, metaphors and yeah. musical musical metaphors mm. but it's not so much why music because I mean you can look at music on a on a sheet mm. and see the bars yeah that's a good example and yeah. and and it's, the, meaningless, yeah. it's, it's just static mm. but music as it's played is is a stretch yeah elongated it's it's elongated there's a specious present or a living presence Mm. specious present is a phrase in contemporary in james is it yeah Yeah. um uh, a living present whereby in order to experience music as music Mm. i must all i must retain the past in a certain sense and anticipate the future time is this stretch that kind of stretches itself out. It's not stretched by anything else. There's no agency external to it doing the stretching, but it is a, a kind of, 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 of stretching into the past and the future. Right. So then, I mean, is the the other question then is like, how does this relate to, to, to the question of memory for Bergson? Because in his book, uh, Matter and Memory, which is, mm-hmm. those, those terms keep coming true again. You can see mm-hmm. it there. Um, uh, how does he sort of, I guess, develop sort of the vitalist themes that we've been talking about? Or how does he sort of develop, how does he apply this notion of the species present to memory? Yeah, I mean, Matter of Memory is a difficult book and it may not fit in very well with the rest of Bergson's thinking. So, mm, um, very difficult, yeah. what, what he says about memory, it, I mean, it's not duration. Memory is not duration. Memory mm. is, is, is about how the past comes back into the present. Yeah. Not for Bergson, how the present is already involved in the recent past, according to a kind of stretched temporality. Mm. They're different issues. I mean, books have been written on why Bergson starts to talk about memory when he does. But for Bergson, his real interest is, first of all, in the nature of memory. And his idea is that... um, he opposes the idea that memories are stored up physiologically in the brain. Right. But he's not opposed to the idea that memories are stored up. They're just stored yeah. up. You just do use like the word, like the brain's like a gatekeeper. Is that it? Yeah, roughly, but, yeah. but the, it's a gatekeeper to the store. Yeah. And the store for Bergson is ideal. All of our past, as experienced, is in a 
it's not a hard drive because it's mm. not physical, but it's an ideal hard drive. Mm. And sense in experience, the unity of my experience is given through memory working its way into present experience. How is it that I recognize the face of a friend, intellectual recognition? Because my, it's not by association. Bergson's offering argues against um, yeah. theories of association. Yeah, so, so the idea that like uh, a thought corresponds to an object, or is associated with a. It's not. A it's word, it's yeah. not that I look at your face mm. and then think somehow that face reminds me of the image that I have in my head mm. of my friend Patrick. Mm. Therefore, that is Patrick. Yeah. No. It's. The, the sense, Patrick, is in the face that I experience. How? Because experience is not just a positive fact. It's given through memory. Experience is, is tinged and coloured mm. by, yeah, yeah, yeah. by memory. Memory is not just something in my head. It, it, it constitutes mm. the meaning of so the like perceived. a trace, if you will. Yeah, of past events. Yeah, so is there a kind of is it kind of is it like a sort of a primary and secondary memory? Working well, there's yeah. there's the two the two sorts of memory. Famously, mm. habit memory, which is not really as Bergson acknowledges, mm. not really a form of memory at all. Yeah, but but memory proper. So that's just habit, and and Bergson unfortunately understands habit fairly mechanically. I mean, he understands he he's reading the neurosciences of the yeah. day, and he's convinced by them. He's he's really not particularly interested in this aspect of Ravisson's thinking. Um, but that's habit. But memory proper is is mind remembrance of things past. So to, to use Proust's term. To yeah. use the title yeah. of Proust's term. But remembrance of things past is what constitutes the present for Bergson. Right. Okay. So that's that's quite a that's quite a that's quite a claim that I think, isn't it? It's yeah. quite a claim, but but Proust does it brilliantly afterwards. I mean, Proust has uh, the narrator in uh, uh, Searching for Lost Time or Remembrance of Things Past eat a madeleine, mm-hmm. and in the madeleine, in he the, the the narrator tastes his childhood, tastes having the cake. When he was a child, it's, 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 so it's an evocation of a past time. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's not by association. Here's yeah. the the lesson that Proust has learnt from Bergson. It's not that the cake makes me think of. Uh-huh. Yeah, my memory. It's not the empirical object. The yeah. memory is in the cake, just like Gestalt psychology shows us that the I see faces or candlesticks when I look at... We've all mm. seen those images mm. that can be seen as either faces yeah, or candlesticks. The duck, rabbit and Wittgenstein and so on. Or yeah. the duck and rabbit and Wittgenstein. Mm. The meaning is in what I see. It's not deduced from it in the mind. And it's the same mm. point... It's like a phenomenology, isn't it? It's, like anyway, it's, it's the, the, the school of phenomenology is going to develop these lessons in, in particular ways. But mm. Husserl and Bergson in their... In the, Concerns who criticise associationism and their concerns to show that meanings already in the perceived world are very, very close to each other. Yeah. So I just got like two more questions for you then. Uh, and one I, I sort of I, I, I can't really sort of not talk about creative evolution, so I'm going to try and combine two questions, I guess. And was it, 
I guess, what is Bergson's view of evolution and how does it differ from, I guess, I don't know, maybe the Richard Dawkins view of evolution or the conventional view of evolution? And is that where there is relevance of Bergson or vitalism uh, today, do you mm, think? Mm. Um, I mean, this is this is a huge question, but, the, well, there are two questions there. What what does What is Bergson's view yeah. and how is it relevant? I mean, his view, the easy way to understand creative evolution is that he's taken time and free will, his psychology of time and free will, mm-hmm. And applied it to life, so it's to been, all life, to all life. Oh, again, uh, so biological processes. Biological life. All life is a function of duration. All life has an inner unity, an inner stretch, mm-hmm. which he understands according to this idea. That's of, useful. That's healthy way of thinking of it. Yeah, which he thinks according to the heading of the ilon vital, the living force or the vital force, so right. um, vital drive or impulse. So how does he? How does he? How does he? I mean. I, I take it he's not like rejecting Darwinism. He is rejecting Darwinism. Oh, he is. Like, yeah. He's like out and out rejecting Darwinism. Of, but remember, of Darwinism, but we've. Um, it's often a. a uh, uh, we conflate often. In, in, in Anglophone studies, mm, we often mm, conflate do, yeah. Darwinism with evolutionary theory. Yeah. There were lots of evolutionary theories prior to, prior to Darwin. So. so Bergson is um, attacking Darwinism because Darwinism is the idea that you can explain evolutionary change by random random mutations mm-hmm. and then the survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. And so, lots and lots of time, yeah. And lots and lots of time, yeah. You know, things change biologically in, in, in an organism and uh, the ones that are successful survive. It's pure randomness. The principle is one of pure chance. Mm-hmm. In Darwinism, so is that is that then is it too radical for Bergson? Darwinism is it mm-hmm. or just too chaotic? Or? It's yeah, it's pure chaos. Yeah. Uh, what you one needs to do is is posit a kind of metaphysical principle, just as Ravisson was a, a positing a metaphysical principle called let's call it desire, mm. that that you know underlies the opposition between mind and matter, and it's a condition of that opposition. Bergson's doing exactly that with the idea of the Alon Vital. What the what we have to do in order to understand evolution adequately, he argues, is to is mm. to posit this this vital living force. Now, the difficulty for Bergson about understanding what this vital living force is is that it's not teleological. It can't simply be teleological. The pursuit of a goal. He doesn't want to yes. claim that the the at one point the the lion was trying to grow teeth. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, but it would be quite absurd, yeah. That yeah, would yeah. be quite absurd, but it's equally absurd, Bergson will argue, to and particular details, not only in principle, but particular details in evolutionary change, the fact that on different in different lineages the same physiological phenomena are producing completely unrelated families of animals. We find very similar physiological f- phenomena. Darwinism offers us no adequate explanation of those family resemblances, of those similarities. Mm. Why is it that um, um, and what you need in order to understand these similarities, what you need in order to understand the evolutionary change is to posit a, a, a living force which is driving forward now mm. the whole trick for Bergson but it manifests itself differently in different species yes yeah yeah 
and the trick for Beltane is is thinking this non teleologically. Yeah. The difficulty. How do you have this idea of a force that's going somewhere without knowing where it's going and without it becoming simply mechanical? But you can see that we're in the same domain. We're in we're in the same problematic as Chavison. Mm. As Chavison's problematic because there we had the the idea of we're trying to find a middle ground between materialism mm. and and uh, idealism. The pursuit of a pursuit of rational mm. well, rational deliberation, the pursuit of ideal goals, in opposition to mechanical um, third person phenomena, mm. Bergson's trying to occupy that middle ground in an evolutionary theory. Also, um, so Mark, thanks for all those questions. Really, really, it's been a pleasure. Really helpful and really useful. And um, uh, just as a sort of an explanation of the vitalism and sort of some of the key thinkers in that movement. Uh, I'm wondering where 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 for vitalism now is it? You think it's having a resurgence? I mean, you're steeped in the 1800s and the early 1900s. Now we're in the sort of 21st century. Whether vitalism, I think panpsychism as a uh, a philosophical position is is uh, even in analytic philosophy and even in an analytic metaphysics, it's becoming once again fashionable. Panpsychism, as Pan, in panpsychism, the idea that um, all material phenomena are a function of the mind or a function of the mind in some sense, grounded in some kind of mental principle. Now, there are clearly advantages to panpsychism as a philosophical position, because in one fell swoop, we've done away with dualist problems. And rather than attempting to do away with dualist problems by saying there is no such thing as mind, there isn't really no such thing as a human being. We can, um, we can, uh, solve the problems by by saying look there's, there's there's no opposition between mind and matter because matter itself is already a function mm. of mind yeah well this is it isn't it like matter is a i mean in sort of contemporary science i think the idea that matter is the be all principle be all and end all of mm. sort of the founding principles mm. that we reduce into material things mm. is not the, no longer the case uh that may be the case mm. yeah that that's mm. right that may be happening in a variety of uh, of the sciences yeah I'm particularly interested in figures like uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who mm. uh, he's read a lot of 19th century French philosophy, but he's, he's... He's trendy. He's just interviewed by Russell Brand. He was just interviewed by Russell Brand? He was, yeah, yeah. You get you get me. Uh, he gets uh, Russell Brand. Right. <laughs> oh, where? On what, on what website? I think on the Russell Brand podcast. All right, brilliant. I'll have a look at that. All right, we'll leave it at that then. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by El Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.